You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Luke chapter 2 is the one we commonly use the most at Christmas time because it, uh, it, is, it is the one gospel record that, that gives us the most details of the birth of Jesus. We've been on Sunday mornings working our way through the Gospel of John, and once in a while we pull away from that to do a short series, which is what we're doing during Advent. Uh, Sometimes we are better prepared to listen at this time of year to these things, and so that's why we're doing this. I'm going to read just a short portion of Luke chapter 2 at the very beginning of the chapter, starting at verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Would you go back with me to the book of Isaiah? And while you're going there, I'll give you a little background information. Isaiah was a, a prophet who, who served in a time, he was a, a preacher, he was a messenger from God. And prophets aren't always people who predict the future. Prophets just carry God's message. And yes, some of them throughout history have been given the privilege of speaking the future, particularly in those times before we had Bibles. Isaiah was one of those prophets. Isaiah was someone who was the pastor to kings. He was, he was kind of like Billy Graham has been in our country, the, the pastor to presidents. Isaiah was one who served primarily the kings in Judah because coming up to this time, uh, shortly before the, these things are being written, the, the kingdom of Assyria had swept in and wiped out Israel, for you Wednesday night people, the northern 10 tribes were taken away never to return, at least never to return intact. And so Isaiah prophesied to Judah, to to the house of David, to the two tribes and to the Levites who were left saying, don't think in your smugness that you guys are better than anyone else. As we read these words from Isaiah chapter 9, In fact, I'm going to start at the end of chapter 8, where we left off last week. Uh, As we start these words, the king is Ahaz. Ahaz is a man who's brilliant, but he squandered all of the opportunities he had. He had so much given to him. He had the best teaching. He had the best example uh, for his his father and his grandfather. And ultimately, his son became a, a true follower of the living God and led the nation before the true king. But Ahaz was a mess. And so I will begin reading at the end of Isaiah chapter 8. If you have a Bible open, it can be helpful. Isaiah is talking about the false prophets who who gave Ahaz the message he wanted to hear. He had itching ears. He could hire a preacher to tell him what he wanted to hear. Verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 8, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And I want you to notice while we go through here, the light and the darkness 
picture. This metaphor is used over and over again. Verse 21, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And here, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We're going to ask God to teach us and then we'll move into our study. Father, we bless you for gifts, truth gifts that, that, go, uh, that are so much more powerful than our means of manipulating and changing our circumstances. Rescue us from that fancy that pushes us to think that our happiness is bound up in other people performing according to our expectations, that our joy is bound up in getting our way. Particularly true in, in a week when, when there's so much gift giving and, and getting and we, we want things in our relationships and in the weather and, and our gatherings to go just our way. Bring us to a kind of joy that's bigger than circumstances. Show us the joy that the people were looking forward to in Isaiah's day, the joy that, that came to full fruit in the coming of Jesus. So instruct us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now, for, for some of my morning thoughts, I, I have a little leather-bound devotional book called uh, Valley of Vision, and it's a collection of Puritan prayers. And uh, the, we don't know who wrote which one. The author doesn't tell us that. And the Puritans kind of liked to stay anonymous anyway. But one I read this week struck me. Uh, and uh, I, in fact, I, I went upstairs and, and read the quote to my wife. Look not below God for happiness. Fall not asleep in Delilah's lap. Let God be all in all to thee and joy in the fountain that is always full. 
I think most of you know this. In fact, a lot of the things that I say for, for most of you uh, who've, who've been followers of Christ for a long time, I'm not telling you anything new. But we need to understand that, that there is uh, a joy to be had that has absolutely nothing to do with circumstances. Nothing you can, I realize happiness is a choice that we make, but even in the, the worst of circumstances, it is possible to have joy and to worship. And that's a message that Isaiah was giving these people in a dark time. I'll give you a little bit more information. If, if you look at what was happening as Isaiah wrote these words, we've got it pretty good <laughs> compared to them. If you can imagine living in a place and a time where life was so unsure that you never knew when a powerful enemy might enter your community and either kill or exile the people, to live in a place when your way of life might be forcefully changed because your enemy was going to, and this is what happened in the north in Israel, your enemy would repopulate your town with people from another culture and likewise send you far away from your home, the Assyrians uh, who dominated the world scene in Isaiah's day were doing just that. And they were known, particular, particularly this man, Tiglath-Pileser III, they were known for the brutal way they treated the people they conquered. When you look at the, the accounts in the Bible, people sometimes assume that those were uh, kind of like, and I'll, I'll just be straight up, kind of like the Book of Mormon where people, somebody made up all of these stories and there's absolutely no historical verification. But there are relief pictures of Tiglath-Pileser III being brutal to the people of Israel and a lot of others. <clears throat> I, I've got a picture in my notes that I, I'm not putting up on the screen. So if you're wondering about that, I actually have a woodcut of, of some of the boasts of Tiglath-Pileser. It was a horrible time, a scary time. These families weren't looking forward to gatherings and sharing Christmas presents. I'll put it that way. Particularly when, when uh, a kingdom dared to rebel against Tiglath-Pileser, against the Assyrians, or enlist the help of another nation, uh, he was especially brutal. He toppled kings like dominoes. And the question of all of these towns with walls around them, the question was not, is this going to happen to us? The question is, who's next? It was just one after another. Not will they attack us, but, but which one of us is going to be next on his list? And the question becomes this. For the, the king in the south, Ahaz, house of David, he had his boast in that, and yet he'd thrown out the worship of the, of the living God, and he's merging worship of Yahweh with the worship of idols. He is someone who knows the scripture very, very well, like a lot of you who've grown up hearing truth and have, like Ahaz said, I want more. I think there's something more. This was a, a, a devastating message for Ahaz. I will give you part of the end of the story. Uh, God protected Ahaz and the house of David and the Assyrians never came in. So don't want you to be nervous through the end of this message. But I will tell you this, there was something bigger when it came to deliverance, there was a bigger deliverance that was coming that was in Isaiah's interests. 
Assyria eventually taking away the northern tribes around the time Isaiah was preaching. He resettled a lot of the exiles of other nations in what was called Samaria. And the result was an ongoing mixed religion, worshiping the living God while bowing down to golden calves and and other idols. You know this if you've read the New Testament as the, the Samaritans. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because they were of mixed descent and they had mixed the worship of the living God with, uh, with the worship of idols. It's called syncretism. Isaiah's primary congregation who, who were hearing these words that we've read today, uh, the people of the South were not going into exile for another hundred years to Babylon, but they knew how powerless they were against the mighty Assyrians. And so as he's talking about darkness in these texts, Isaiah uses this over and over again. Back in chapter five, Isaiah said, if one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. When Judah's leadership saw how much trouble they were in, they saw that, that they had gone to the Assyrians for help against their other enemies and the Assyrians backed the wagons up and said, you're gonna pay us richly for this. When they saw how much trouble they were in, Ahaz the king sought help from people who spoke without the authority of God's word. And so that's why Isaiah says, what, you're consulting the dead on behalf of the living? There's the living God and he's given you truth and you are running everywhere you can but the only hope you have. And so Ahaz brought in every kind of prophet he could bring in just just to help him have some kind of hope in the middle of this darkness. And that's why Isaiah warned the people in the verses that I read from the end of chapter seven. He said, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? In other words, there's where your hope is. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They're They're in the dark. So this brought Isaiah's prophecy to a future promise. And we enter chapter nine of Isaiah. Man, that was a really long introduction. So here we go. Isaiah 9, one. There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. Do you see the joy behind the darkness of this picture? There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The reason this is significant is because this wouldn't have been called Galilee of the Gentiles a few years before Isaiah wrote this. The Assyrians had come in and had wiped out everything that people were familiar with in the north. He had taken them away and it had become known as Galilee of the Gentiles. This is the place where 700 years later, Joseph and his wife Mary, running their little carpenter shop, brought up the Lord Jesus and their other at least six children. This is from inside the Bible. Uh, we, we read those things. Isaiah is giving hope. But when I, when I look at texts like this, when we start talking about hope, when we start talking about joy that can be had when things are really, really hard, when they are absolutely not turning out the way you would have chosen, when the story appears to be coming to an end in a way you never would have written it. Let me encourage you, the story's not over yet. 
And when I think of these things, it reminds me of a friend of mine who ran. A lot of you have heard this story. Uh, When we were in college, he would go running. And uh, long about March, he was out running and there were still piles of snow. And he was running in the morning and it was quiet in, in Ankeny, Iowa, where we were going to school. And he's running along and he hears crying And he looks up and there's a little kid all bundled up and and had decided to go out and play and had sunk into one of those remaining piles of snow uh, up to his or her, I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, uh, up to the waist, just stuck and crying because there was nobody around. And my friend is actually the pastor of the church we prayed for in Racine. Uh, This morning, the, the... my friend saw this child and it's like, boy, I better come over and help. And he, he ran over to the child and all of a sudden it's, <laughs> and the child smiled. And here's the way he put it. He said, the circumstances had not changed at all. Nothing had changed. And he said, in fact, I could have just kept running <laughs> and left him there. But there was a prospect of deliverance. That's what Isaiah is giving us. We tend to think joy is wrapped up in having what I want right now. But Isaiah is giving a prospect of deliverance. And it wasn't all about would the Assyrians come in or not. I told you that that God did prevent them from getting all the way to Jerusalem and taking the city and its people that would come sometime later. But when he talks about gloom, that word translated gloom is only used once in the Bible. Uh, the King James Version, if you've got a King James, uses the word dimness. But, but gloom is the most common word in, in the English translations that are probably around this room. There's a, a related word that's used a couple of other times in the Bible of, of just being worn out. You ever get to that place? That's the word gloom. You're looking gloomy. Good English word. The point is this, the the region that the father had chosen for the earthly rearing of his son was an often downtrodden location. It became known just as Galilee of the Gentiles. In fact, when you read your Bible in the book of Acts on Pentecost, as people were speaking in actual languages they had never learned, and, and the educated folks from Jerusalem were saying, wait a minute, Aren't these Galileans? How those Galileans learn all of those languages? Another proverb was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Galileans. And what's pertinent to most who study this text is, is the intended audience for the hope of what we're reading. Isaiah primarily was talking to the people of Judah, the people around Jerusalem and its kings. But the people who got this message are the lowly inhabitants of the northern reaches of Israel, including Gentiles. So here's the point. The gloom is going to not last forever, is not going to last forever. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, there's something rich coming to you in your gloom, in your darkness. There's light coming. In fact, verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, of course, is recorded in in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter four, in fact, when Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus withdrew 
from the south, from around Jerusalem to the region of Galilee where his home was. And that's where Jesus began his earthly ministry. The wedding of Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, that's Galilee of the Gentiles. That's when light walked into, even though he had grown there, when Jesus started his ministry, began preaching, that darkness that's described as a, a picture of the years of oppression that these people had endured at the hands of invaders like Midianites and Arameans and Assyrians. These aren't made up tribes. There's a historic record inside and outside the Bible that things were dark. And that's when Isaiah served as a prophet. Here's what he said to the people, Galilee of the Gentiles. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. Note the joy. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Uh, those words gladness and glad are words that are used of the mirth that's associated with festivals. Whenever they had a feast day and everybody would go to Jerusalem, it was a giant family reunion. People were thrilled with those times and those are the words, eat your bread with gladness. All of those festivals were, were celebrating the redemption the provision that the Lord brought to his people. And I think both of those are in view here because the harvest is the Lord's time of provision of food. The dividing of spoil after battle that he's talking about here is the redemption God brings when he conquers his enemies. And so he gives a military promise. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. And this is, if you remember the story of Gideon, that's the comparison here. Battles fought by the Lord look very much like the battle that Gideon basically watched. It wasn't much of a fight. I want to pause and make an application before I go on because it's, it's important that we not get lost in the details, even though this is, this is some rich history we're getting the application points to those of us who are weary of struggling with sin. We're living in gloom. We've confessed the same thing, believer, over and over again to the living God. And we think that there must be just some, some easy practical lessons, some simple steps that we can take. And we're, we're looking in the self-help section. We're reaching everywhere to get past this darkness and this gloom. And Isaiah is saying the joy, the gladness is found in a person, not in a changing of your circumstances. It's found in truth. In this case, when he said in the last chapter to the law and to the testimony, he's saying God has spoken. We ought to listen. The victory over the battles is, is not bringing down your unreasonable employer or an unreasonable family member. The real war is inside you and the real victory comes because of the one who would come and bear sins. Verse five, interesting words. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. The point is this. There, there would not be enough in, in the battles that God would bring, physical battles he would bring. There was going to be no plunder worth dividing. God was going to bring such an end to any enemy, the ultimate route of Israel's enemies. And so their end would be so gruesome, there would be no point in dividing the spoil. And now we get to the most familiar verse of this section of Isaiah. 
for a child will be born to us. You say, that sounds like, yeah, that's from Handel's Messiah. Uh, He didn't write that, Isaiah did. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. We're going to break this down in just the next few minutes and, and finish off and hopefully we're going to realize, yeah, there's a superior joy than joy that comes when people behave the way I want them to behave, when circumstances turn out the way I want them to, when my health is great and I have lots of money. That's not your hope, friend. Even though a lot of Christian television seems to point us to a hope that's us getting our way, it's so much richer than that. A good day is not when you get your way, but when God gets his way. A good church service is not when you leave saying, oh, I feel, I feel so warm and, and, and fuzzy. That, the, it, warm fuzzies are great, but we're not all about the feels other than to hear from God. Worship that exalts God is so much more effective than worship that makes us feel good. A child will be born to us, Isaiah says. Why is it significant that God uses a child? I mean, God certainly works through small things and weak things to demonstrate his power. But even though the unfolding of this prophecy showed humble weakness in in the Lord Jesus, ultimately, weakness is probably not the primary purpose of the statement. A child is an heir. This is promise. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. The promise of hope right after Adam and Eve sinned was what? The seed of the woman, this child who would be born of the woman, the child is the heir. Because God is dwelling outside of time, the the child is viewed, even in the time between conception and birth, as the one who will carry on the purposes of the family. This is the heir. Unto us, we could say the heir is born. If you look at the the common Christmas prophecy a couple of chapters earlier that we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to cover this next week. Uh, Isaiah spoke of the virgin conception of a child. The virgin will conceive and and bear a son and we'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. There was joy or there would be joy in the conception of the Redeemer, or we call him Messiah, or we know him as Jesus Christ. There was joy in the conception of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. There was joy in the conception of uh, the prophet Samuel. There was joy in the, the conception and the birth of John the Baptist. You see a lot of these pictures that point us to delight of God bringing an heir. And it says on this child, the government will rest on his shoulders. You know, almost every time that word shoulders is used in the Old Testament, it it applies literally to carrying something really heavy. And and here it's just a picture, It's, it's a metaphor. There would be something heavy. He is the bearer of something. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 53, you're going to see he was the bearer of sins. He himself carried our sins. Wonderful counselor. The word counselor is actually used in scripture of David and Absalom's military advisors. But this counselor would speak truth because he is truth. Mighty God. And this identifies this ruler who would come. 
not as simply an earthly king, but as the powerful warrior God of the Bible. I just, within the last couple of weeks, was reading a, a rabbi's estimation of Isaiah's prophecies of Messiah. And the rabbi was asked a question by a, a, an unbelieving Jew, a non-Christian Jew, saying, what, what about all of this talk, that these things in the Bible that, that Messiah would be God? And he scoffed at that. And yet here in the Hebrew scriptures, what are we reading? That this redeemer who was coming would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father or Everlasting Father. It doesn't mean the Son is the Father. Jesus just said this, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It demonstrates that, that in Christ are found all the attributes of God. And after all the talk of war, he's called the Prince of Peace. How odd that the warrior king who conquers and rules should be known as the the prince or the captain of peace. There will be no increase, rather there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace because this kingdom isn't going to end. This is a kingdom where, where a person rules inside of, of the people who are inhabitants of the kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom, Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world or my servants would fight for it. It's a different kind of battle. There will be no end to this kingdom. It is boundless. It will increase on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And so here you cross-reference 2 Samuel 7 where the Lord promised David, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. There will be a king ultimately who would rule forever. And that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. This last statement of verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That word hosts is very important. It's the Lord of armies. That's what, what the word hosts means. The Lord of armies See, the Lord's command over his troops is shown here. Uh, the Bible speaks of hosts or armies in space, like armies of angels. He commands the stars. He calls the stars hosts. He rules this mob of heavenly messengers called angels. And it also describes the people of God who are under his command. So it's used in a lot of ways, but it's always used of an army. And the transformation from gloom to joy is not man's work, but it's God's. We think our joy is found in falling asleep in Delilah's lap, the Puritan said, but there's a better source of joy for us. This, it's this never-ending kingdom of God that isn't going to be ushered in on the heels of human effort. It's going to be ushered in when the king of kings returns for his people. So I can't possibly know where all of you are today, not only in your relationship with God, but in your circumstances, where you are. When we talk about gloom, certainly there's plenty of it to be had. Especially when the sun hasn't been out for a long time, at least not very often. When it's cold, when people aren't, well, they're behaving less than entirely sanctified, you put it that way. 
How do you take a gloomy place and turn it into a glorious place? Certainly, when Isaiah wrote these words, there was a, there was a dread because authority was being abused and, and the people could do nothing about it. Not only their earthly king abusing them spiritually, but the king of another nation threatening to take their lives. How do you take a gloomy place and turn it into a glorious place? I want to take you in your minds back to the shepherds just doing their job, watching their flocks at night, probably because of the time of year they were, they were having to be out in the fields, taking their sheep wherever they could find grass, just mundane tasks. Joseph and Mary, living in poverty, having very little, we know that for a lot of reasons, but one of them is they didn't even have good clothes to wrap the baby in just strips of cloth. You, you put in that circumstance the sky exploding and saying there's joy here because the joy is found in a person. And Isaiah is saying not just a baby, but the ruler who ultimately is going to lead all his armies to victory. Here are some factors that make this rule a joy. Honestly, I, if, if all of us here were completely honest with the answer to this question, it would be helpful if we before God would be willing to say, you know, I like the whole Jesus thing, the, the Jesus story, but I'm a little bit afraid to bow the knee and say, take me and do what you want because I'm not sure I can trust your decisions. I've got my own life planned out. And yet, when you come to bow the knee to Jesus as your rescuer from your sin, you are saying, you make the calls. You, you would run this life so much better than I ever could. And so the factors that make this rule a joy go so much further than he might take me someplace I didn't ask him to take me. One is this, and the people of Isaiah's day had to learn this, his anger has limits and a purpose. And when I talk about anger, it's, the scripture says that God is angry all the time. God, is, God hates sin. There is, there is a settled anger. You say, but I thought God was a God of love. Absolutely. And there's no inconsistency in God being a God of wrath and yet still loving his purposes and his people. His anger, though, has limits. It, it has a purpose. That's important here. If you were in on the, the teen drama last week, the king wrote the story. He wrote it. He isn't reacting to it. He isn't saying, wow, I didn't know it in that way. He doesn't waste characters. He doesn't bring judgment without a redemptive purpose. There's, there's a plan. That's why the cross of Christ is so important to understand as, as an implement of God's wrath toward the sins of everyone who would believe. His anger has limits and a purpose and that means if there's a, a gloom and it seems like you're just living under the wrath of God, there is only one place for you and me to turn when we sense that. In fact, thank him for the gift of sensing his anger. Here's another important factor that make this rule of the child king a joy. And that is he provides daily occasions for rejoicing. It, let me just speak very practically to you. I, when I hear in the news and, and I hear a little bit more because I've been working some with the Rice Lake Police Department chaplaincy program, 
there are people, especially this time of year, who are just ready to end it all. And usually that comes just when, when, they're, when they see no hope for anything better than what we have here. I am arguing that even if you are not yet a follower of Christ, or if you are a follower of Christ and you're the little kid stuck in the snowdrift, you just need to look up. He provides daily occasions for rejoicing. There's always a reason to get up in the morning, believer. There's always a reason to be cheerful. The needs of this kingdom are completely supplied by the king. That's why Jesus said, just just pray for bread for today. Daily bread, redemption are completely supplied by this king. And that's where there's joy. That's why when you sing Christmas carols, you don't have to just delight because it's something familiar from your childhood. You sing these words and you realize, wow, I'd never really paid attention to that. These are calling us to have delight even on a dark December day. Here's another one. It's not that we take joy in in people being judged, but we do take joy in, in the power of God who doesn't allow his enemies to endure. You can't even say that when you live in the most powerful nation on earth uh, that no enemy of ours will endure. I know one of our, one of our presidents after we had been attacked many, many years ago uh, said they, they will not escape our wrath any more than they can escape the wrath of God. Well, he was right on one account. The wrath of the United States of America is nothing like the wrath of God. The kingdoms of men, including the one we're living in, eventually will come to an end. His kingdom cannot. No enemy of his can endure. That's a reason for joy. Because your enemies, child of God, are his enemies. His strength, not your strength, brings about peace. Peace. Any kind of deliverance that you have, whether it's that sin that you keep committing over and over again, that weakness that you are living with constantly, or that dread that's hanging over you, that unanswered question. In fact, some of it might be consequences of things that you've chosen to do yourself, and you are living in the consequences of your own error. Peace doesn't come by you turning things around. Isaiah is teaching us this here. Deliverance of any kind, freedom from depression or freedom from the bondage of your own sin, that comes from the rescuer, not from human ability, not from self-help techniques. This is the one who came. That's why there was joy in Bethlehem. That's why the sky was lit up as well as must have been the faces of the people. Good news. And that's why the shepherds went away in awe of what God had done and in awe of what he had promised. Let's pray. Father, use this hope from Isaiah, the joy that was promised in one of the darkest times of Israel's history. Use use these words because it's your word to us to awaken us to the joy that's found in the Lord Jesus, that we celebrate a historic event that brought hope for sinners like us. Turn those outside of the faith to the Savior, we pray, even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.